Hi, and welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Mishu. Today, we get the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Paul Aronson, a specialist in pediatric emergency medicine, and also one of the authors for the February Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice article on pediatric fever. Before we get started, I want to remind you about ebmedicine.net, your one-stop shop for all things related to CME. Don't forget about all three journals, Emergency Medicine Practice, Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice, and Evidence-Based Urgent Care, the Laceration Course, the EKG Course, so many resources there at your fingertips, the clinical pathways that are interactive and available in the palm of your hand on your mobile device is all there for you at ebmedicine.net. And now, let's jump into the conversation with Paul. My name is Paul Aronson. I'm a pediatric emergency medicine physician at Yale School of Medicine. I'm an associate professor of pediatrics of emergency medicine and the deputy director of our pediatric residency uh, program. And part of my academic life is doing research on fibrotic infants. Fantastic. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Now, you are one of three authors for the February Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice article on febrile infants age less than or equal to 60 days. So I'm going to date myself here for just a little bit, but (laughs) I did residency at a time where anybody in this category or even up to 90 days who had a fever was just an automatic admission, an automatic culture of every possible body fluid, (laughs) an automatic lumbar puncture, regardless of lab findings or clinical examination or anything. So It's been quite the pendulum swing to see this process change over the last 20 years. And there's been now an even more recent update since 2021. Is that right? Yes. In 2021, in late July and then August for the print publication, the American Academy of Pediatrics published their first clinical practice guideline for the evaluation and management of well-appearing febrile infants eight to 60 days of age and summarizing the state of evidence and then providing recommendations for practice. Awesome. And that was a significant undertaking with a large volume of evidence to support that, or was that mostly opinions in the guidelines? Yes, it's a great question. So it was a multidisciplinary group. Uh, physicians, I, I have to look at the author list and whether there are non-physician members as well, but I think the key point is febrile infants both certainly impact in our frequent patient population for us in the emergency department, but also hospitalists, general practitioners, general pediatricians, infectious disease physicians are also involved. And so it was a multidisciplinary group. The emergency medicine representative was Nate Cooperman, who does a lot of impactful research in this area, amongst other things. And so it was a multidisciplinary group, summarized a lot of evidence. It was very good evidence. There are a few areas that are more con- sort of, I would say, consensus-based recommendations. And evidence overall, I would say, is strong in some areas and more weak to moderate in others. And this is all laid out in, in the guidelines. And then in the way of just introduction for anybody who is out there and maybe only occasionally treats children or people in this age group, so this is the 60 days or less age group, there is a relatively high frequency of bacterial infection, and then there's some nomenclature, some changes in terminology. So let's start with the risks for bacterial infection. So what kinds of infections do we see most often in this age group? Yeah, so the infections we mostly focus on are what we call the occult infections, meaning that fever may be and often is the only symptom or side of the infection versus the more specific bacterial infections that have a physical exam finding. Pneumonia, for example, 
cellulitis, osteomyelitis. So the infections we talk about are the occult infections used to be termed collectively serious bacterial infections. And that includes urinary tract infection, bacteremia, and bacterial meningitis. And what's evolved and what the guidelines recommend is that we drop the serious bacterial infection label. The reason is that urinary tract infection is the most prevalent of the bacterial infections, about 8 to 10%, up to 13%, depending on the age and various factors. But we'll say around 10% of febrile infants in those first 60 days of life will have a urinary tract infection. And then that's separated from what we now call invasive bacterial infection, which is bacteremia and or bacterial meningitis collectively, which are more serious if untreated, could have associated morbidity and mortality. And bacteremia occurs on average, the prevalence is around 2% in febrile infants, 3% in the first month of life, a little bit higher. And then bacterial meningitis is around 0.4 to 0.5% prevalence, a little bit higher than 1% in the first month of life. So collectively, somewhere around 2 to 3% of these infants will have an invasive bacterial infection. And the guideline is really separating urinary tract infection from invasive bacterial infection, given the sort of differential in how you diagnose them and in the potential morbidity and mortality. Fantastic. And then there's some excellent tables in this article. Table one, definitions associated with febrile young infants. Now, we say infants, but today we're talking about those 60 days and under. We don't mean in that whole first year of life. Yeah, so it's a very unique population. The 60 days of age or below or what we call febrile infants or febrile young infants, so just extend it out. And that's because those infants just have a higher risk of bacterial infection than infants who are older. Infants technically goes up to age 12 months, but that two to 12 month old age group is fundamentally different in terms of their risk of some of these, especially invasive bacterial infections. So the guideline and the bulk of the evidence is for those 60 days and below. And that's why we focus on those infants in this article, as well as the AAP guideline. And then this age group is still susceptible to infections from the birth process and coming through the birth canal opposed to those that are older. Is that right? Yes. If you look at the epidemiologic studies in this age group, the most common bacterial infection that's isolated from febrile infants in the first 60 days of life is E. coli. That is primarily a urine pathogen, but also the most common cause of bacteremia. Bacterial meningitis, the number one cause, is still group B streptococcus. And group B strep used to be the number one cause overall, but because now there's peripartum screening and antepartum prophylaxis, or really peripartum prophylaxis, that group B strep, the incidence of early onset sepsis, which is the first week of life, has gone down. And so now E. coli is number one, followed by group B strep. And then after that, you have a sort of smattering of different gram-positive and gram-negative organisms can cause infections. Phoreus, streptococcus pneumoniae, a little bit less. Some of the gram-negatives like Klebsiella, Andrococcus, another gram positive that can cause urinary tract infections, all of which there's sort of various percentages, but by far it's E. coli followed by group B strep as number one and number two. And I should say group B strep coming from the mom, as you mentioned. And then continuing with the definitions there in the table, when we talk about temperature in this population, we're talking about a rectal temperature at 38 degrees Celsius or 100.4 Fahrenheit. Yeah, so that is the definition. It's a very low fever threshold, and that's been the sort of evidence-based sort of threshold. I say later in the article, we talk a little bit about how about non-rectal temperatures, and rectal temperatures is the gold standard temperature measurement in this age group and should certainly be obtained in the emergency department in that manner. It's a little bit of a gray area for infants who have 100.4 degree Fahrenheit fever uh, that's documented by a temporal temperature or an axillary temperature. It becomes a little more gray. I think for the functional purposes in the emergency department, we often, not always, treat that the same way, but rectal temperature is truly the standard, and that's what we should be using in the emergency department for checking fevers in this age. And then table two 
discusses just some of the infectious sources for febrile infants, everything in the bacterial, but also in the viral infection category as well, because they're just as susceptible to those viruses that all the other children up in their first year of life are susceptible to. Is that right? Yeah. So I would say I've mentioned before about 10% of these infants have a urinary tract infection and 2 to 3% have an invasive bacterial infection. The vast majority of the rest of them, the other 80 to 90%, somewhere in there, have likely a viral infection. We don't always document it because we don't test comprehensively for viruses necessarily. That is a topic later in the article. And so viral infections are the most common cause of fever. And those can range from respiratory virus infection, things like RSV and flu, COVID or SARS-CoV-2. Also enterovirus is a common one in the summer and winter. The more serious one is herpes simplex virus. That is a much more rare infection in this age group, but the one that it is actually associated with significant morbidity and mortality. And so that's the one sort of virus that physicians keep on their radar as one that we actually treat more aggressively because it can have serious consequences, though it's, again, pretty uncommon, but one that we see periodically and should be aware of. And that one specifically is more likely to occur in the first 28 days? Exactly, yeah. So if you look at some sort of epidemiologic studies, it's probably most common in the first 21 days of life. So that's neonatal herpes simplex virus infection. That's because it can be acquired in the sort of peripartum period for a, a mother who it's their first sort of episode, first primary infection, especially with a vaginal delivery. It can occur up to 28 days. It does happen after that, but it becomes increasingly less common and more commonly after 28 days to probably occur from an external source, like a family member has a herpes labialis and, and transmits it. But really, primarily we think about it in the first month, especially the first three weeks of life. And just out of curiosity, so when this presents itself in this age population, is it coming with a classic rash and a fever, or is it more of a systemic infection without a source, and then you discover this when you're culturing or testing body fluids? Yeah, so this is an active area of, I would say, investigation and controversies in the sense that it's a pretty uncommon infection, you know, epidemiologically less common than the bacterial infections that we mentioned before. About 40 to 50% of infants probably have vesicles. That's a classic rash, vesicles, a punched out ulcer. So if you see that on a febrile infant or any infant, you should aggressively investigate for HSV, both on the skin, mucous membrane, blood, CSF. The challenge is the most serious forms of the, of the disease, central nervous system or CNS disease or disseminated HSV, about up to perhaps half or 60% of these infants may not have a vesicle. And we'll push that with nonspecific signs, fever, low temperature, they often will appear if it's progressed, seizures, certainly. And so I think there's a debate on who you test and treat. One, one guideline recommends is treating all those infants under 28 days who have a high-risk feature. Mom had a fever at the time of delivery. Mom was diagnosed with herpes around the time of delivery. Infants ill appearing, has a seizure, so it has vesicles, would be a reason to do a comprehensive testing and treatment. And then what one sort of guideline, which came out of Cincinnati, recommends every baby under 21 days of age which the recommendation for the guideline, which we'll get to, says to do a lumbar puncture and do CSF testing, that you should send HSV in those infants and then decide on a cyclovir or more comprehensive testing depending on risk factors. So a staged approach depending on age and depending on risk factors in that setting. Perfect. Okay, I like to start with our pre-hospital personnel. So if there are people who work in the pre-hospital setting listening, they're wondering what can we do for this age population as we're transporting patients to the emergency department? Is there anything specific they can do to assist us in either making the diagnosis or initiating treatment before they get to the ED? Yes, I would say the major thing takeaway would be that these infants with a fever in this first 60 days are at 
a significant risk of bacterial infection. And so the most important treatment is to, you know, get them transported to a emergency department that has the capabilities, which most should be able, being able to initiate a rapid workup for these infants uh, to diagnose them or to rule out, rule in a bacterial infection. For infants who are ill-appearing, who look more sick, I think this is where you're, you're concerned for they actually have a bacterial infection, specifically invasive bacterial infection goes up, and you may need to be give some fluids if that falls in the capability of, of that level of EMS. You have to be a little bit careful because ill-appearing infants more globally without a fever can have other pathologies, including cardiac disease, congenital heart disease, which are managed very differently. But speaking purely of a febrile infant who looks ill, you should presume they have sepsis. Fluids may be needed, and the most important thing is to rapidly transport them to uh, a center that is capable of initiating a workup, giving antibiotics, and going from there. And then I noticed the article talked about hypoglycemia as yeah. well, so checking that blood sugar, equally important. Yes, that's a good point. I'm sorry I didn't mention that. So that's, I think, with some of these infants, especially with bacterial infection, they can chew up their glycogen stores and their glucose pretty fast, and so they can become hypoglycemic pretty profoundly, even with a viral infection. And so I think recognizing that and checking a glucose early may be needed and often can be recommended just because hypoglycemia can be missed. These infants could be sleepy or could be irritable because they're hypoglycemic and that would be a treatment that you could give uh, on route regardless of the cause because viral and bacterial infections both can result in hypoglycemia. And then when they get to the emergency department and we are confronted with the patient and hopefully a family member who can give us a history, what kinds of things do we need to know about historical features, delivery, early birth, that kind of stuff that we need to get from a parent? Yeah, so the good news is unlike an adult patient, there's not going to be a whole lot of window of history, but there's some important features that fall in there. So certainly we think about the fever itself. What was the temperature at home? How was it taken is very important. And that could be at home or a clinic, for example. When was that? The duration of fever was just very recent. It was a day ago. And these are important factors. The associated of any other symptoms, certainly, that could indicate a viral infection, runny nose, cough, those sort of symptoms, any sort of signs of other diarrhea, of skin infection, for example. I think from a historical standpoint, the important factors are gestational age. And the, gu and the AAP guideline is very clear that it's recommended for infants who are above 37 weeks gestational age or more uh, full term, just because preterm infants have a little bit of a higher risk, we believe, in having these more invasive bacterial infections, so they may be managed differently. Premature birth, was there anything concerning symptoms of the mom had prenatal care? Was she screened for group B strep as she was? Was she positive? Was she treated for it in the antepartum? Any risk factors for HSV, for example? Really, any other factors could increase this infant's risk of having a bacterial or viral infection that needs more rapid workup. And the other thing I'll mention too is feeding is really important too, getting a sense of their volume status. So with any illness, especially if they have sepsis or invasive bacterial infection, are they feeding okay? What's their output? Because that may indicate more serious signs they need more rapid management fluids, antibiotics earlier because they're dehydrated from a bacterial infection. Perfect. And then when it comes time to do the exam, is there really anything that's helpful on physical exam when we're <laughs> assessing somebody this age? Yeah, so the ideal is being able to differentiate a well-appearing versus an ill-appearing infant. And there's a scale that was derived about it four decades ago called the Yale Observation Scale, which essentially is you walk in a room, you can look at a child, a young child, and differentiate based just on how they're looking and how they're interacting with the environment, whether well-appearing or ill-appearing. Fortunately, that scale has been shown multiple times now to not work very well in this age group, specifically well-appearing infant still has a very similar increased risk of having a bacterial infection. The infant's ill-appearing to you, so that infant probably has even higher risk, like a more likely that infant has an invasive bacterial infection. 
So I think that's the main differentiator. If you walk in the room and you think the infant looks ill-appearing, the guideline then goes to the side and you should presume that infant has bacterial meningitis, has bacteria, has urinary tract infection, in do urine, blood, CSF, do the full workup, hospitalize, et cetera. I think that's the major differentiating point you're looking for is ill-appearing versus well-appearing. And if you're not comfortable because you may not see a lot of febrile infants in your practice and you're not sure if they're well-appearing, then I would err on the side of caution. That's a big sort of thing if you're not comfortable. This age group is classically difficult to assess because you don't do a lot of physical signs. Other, other things looking for an exam or really any other signs of infection. Look in the ears, have cellulitis. Is one of their joints swollen? You might have to grab the just being comprehensive around that standpoint. Um, the ill-appearing, well-appearing is the most important differentiating feature of most of these infants. Perfect. So ill-appearing, we're doing the full court press. Yep. And if they're well-appearing, now the guidelines have a distinction or categories based on age. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so this was a big change with this guideline versus historical practice. So even more recent practice up before 2021, we would differentiate based on the first four weeks of life, so 28 days and below, and then infants 29 to 60 days. What the guideline did is they separated into three distinct age groups. The guideline says eight to 21 days. I think for the purposes of us in the emergency department, I would include zero to 21 days. Any infant presenting will fall. Into the group. Then 22 to 28 days, so we're the fourth week of life, its own group, and the third group being the 29 to 60 day old infant. And the reason the guideline separates those infants into those three age groups based on multiple research groups, PCAR and one of our pediatric emergency care applied research network, our major research network here, our own febrile infant research group that I've been a part of, other research groups, essentially documented the risk of bacteremia and nice sort of figure in the guideline goes down by age. So in the first three weeks of life, it's maybe more in the three to 4% range. Second, that 22 to 28 days, more maybe two to 3%, and then it goes down to below 2% or around 2% in that 29 to 60 days. And meningitis, while lower percentages would follow the same sort of decline. And so the risk profile is just different in those three age groups. And so there's different management recommendations based on the infant's age, each distinctly in those three different age groups. Okay. Let's focus in on the well-appearing zero to 21-day patient. This person, regardless of being well-appearing, is going to get treated with everything in this age group? Yeah, so what the recommendation is that you presume that this infant, the first 21 days of life, because of a higher risk of back, uh, invasive bacterial infection, has a UTI, has bacteremia, has meningitis until proven otherwise. And so you do a urine studies, and specifically urine studies, this goes for all the age groups. The guideline recommends doing a urinalysis and then sending a urine culture if the urinalysis is positive. It's a little bit of a controversial recommendation in the sense that if the urinalysis is negative, the guideline makes the argument that even if the culture is positive in the setting of a normal urinalysis, that may be a false positive, could be contaminant, could be a asymptomatic bacteria. Either way, urinalysis plus minus urine culture, a blood culture, other blood testing is optional because it doesn't really change management. It's really blood culture. And then uh, doing CSF studies, most importantly, a CSF culture, ideally with a cell count, glucose, and protein as well. In addition, the neonatal herpes simplex virus testing that we mentioned before, really based on the infant's risk profile, they have high risk factors. You should be doing comprehensive HSV testing in that age group. You could do respiratory viral symptoms testing depending on the infant's symptoms, similar to stool pathogen if they have diarrhea or bloody diarrhea. And then that infant would then be automatically treated with antibiotics and admitted to the hospital until those cultures are negative for at least 24 hours. Good. So really... The 0-21-day infant and the ill-appearing infant are getting treated the same. We're just being very aggressive with everything we've got. 
Exactly. Now, the sort of odds, the probability is still that infant probably has a viral infection, but definitely the risk goes up and off. I think none of us want to miss bacteria, miss meningitis. So yes, those infants are treated exactly the same as you said. Okay. And then the fourth week, so the 22 to 28 day infant, how is this different? Yeah. So I would say the 22 to 28 day and the 29 to 60 day get the same initial workup, presuming again, they're well appearing. And that they get the urinalysis again with a urine culture. If the urinalysis is positive, then you assume they have a UTI at that point. And then you're sending a blood culture. You are not automatically doing cerebrospinal fluid testing. Instead, you're sending inflammatory markers. And the inflammatory markers fall into buckets. So the ideal is that if you have procalcitonin or PCT available at your hospital, you should be using that with absolute neutrophil count or ANC. And so you send a CBC and a PCT. You then wait for the results to determine the need for further testing and management. If you do not have a PCT available at your hospital, what the guideline recommends for inflammatory markers is ANC, so again, a CBC, a CRP, and then using height of temperature together to then risk stratify. So again, you're going to be waiting for some lab tests, but then using temperature as well. The important piece of this, which is point of some confusion, when if you have a PCT available, you do not use the height of temperature to risk stratify. It's really the inflammatory markers or ANC and PCT. You wait for those to come back, and then that determines the next step in management. And then otherwise, you would similarly do other sort of testing, respiratory viral testing, as indicated based on symptoms and similar stool pathogen PCR, for example. In the rare infant who has like bloody diarrhea and a fever, you might think about salmonella, so you might do a stool path PCR as an example. And when you talk about height of temperature, what exactly are we talking about? Yeah, so what the guideline recommends is based on a few studies, some that we've done, some others have done, is that what considered abnormal is, so the fever threshold is still 38 or 100.4. What's considered abnormal is if the height of fever is over 38.5, that above that, there is a increased risk with a higher temperature above 38.5 degrees Celsius that the infant has an invasive bacterial infection. That being said, most infants with fever above 38.5 don't have invasive bacterial infection. And that's why if you have PCT available, you should ignore the height of temperature because it doesn't improve the risk stratification protocol that you would use. But if you don't have PCT, temperature over 38.5 is recommended in combination with ANC or CRP. And that can be a temperature taken at home or the ED, wherever the max is, it's documented, especially rectally. And that's the same for the 22 to 28 and the 29 to 60 day group? Yep. So the same initial workup, which is different based on the result of the testing you get back, is that when those two groups start differentiating in terms of the next steps in management. But the initial workup is the same for that 22 to 28 day age group and that 29 to 60 day age group. So the difference here being that we don't automatically have to go to lumbar puncture. We have an option based on these tests that is a kind of a first screen. Yep, exactly. So the key point is, I think, is you use inflammatory markers. And so the urinalysis, if it's positive, you would assume it may not be, but you would presume they have a UTI until the culture comes back positive or negative. And that's its own sort of category. But what the inflammatory markers are really screening for is invasive bacterial infection. And so you wait for those to come back, PCT, the ANC, or if you don't have it available, high temperature, you would know, plus the ANC, plus the CRP. And then based on those, you would determine the next steps, which the next steps differ for those two different age groups. Gotcha. Okay, let's talk about those next steps yeah. then. So if we have done our testing and we now have, say, an elevated procalcitonin and an absolute neutrophil count greater than 4,000 cells per millimeter cube, that what's listed there in table four on page six of the article, if they're in that 22 to 28 day category, what next? Yeah. So if the inflammatory markers, either of them are abnormal, what the guideline recommends, and this is following the algorithm that we put in, 
is that you should do cerebral spinal fluid testing. Meaning that at that point, the infant's risk now of having bacterial meningitis in particular, in addition to bacterial meningitis, is higher. So the recommendation is to do cerebral spinal fluid testing. If the, C the CSF testing is normal, the recommendation I would say for emergency medicine physicians is that to, you would still admit that infant on septraxone. You assume they probably don't have meningitis. If you did lumbar puncture, it was successful. The CSF does not have a high white cell count. Uh, for example, this age group, you essentially 10 or above. You would then admit them on septraxone. If the CSF does look like meningitis, then you would broaden the antibiotics and the combination of ampicillin and ceftazidime to more broadly cover for uh, meningitis. And that's if the inflammatory markers are abnormal. Gotcha. So abnormal inflammatory markers going after CSF in the 22 to 28 day range. Yeah. And then is that the same for the 29 to 60 or does that differ? So it starts to differ a little bit. And the reason, and this is also a practice change as well, is that in the 29 to 60 day age group, even in the setting of abnormal inflammatory markers, the risk definitely goes up that infant could have bacterial or bacterial meningitis, but it's still relatively low. I Meaning it's hard to exactly quantify, but say several percent, maybe four or five percent, something like that. meningitis risk is maybe one percent. Not high, but it's a serious infection. And so what the guideline recommends in this case is that the inflammatory markers in that 29 to 60 days group are not normal. That if the urinalysis is normal, so you don't think they have a UTI, then it gives you an option to do a lumbar puncture, meaning you could do shared decision-making with a parent around that. I think for the emergency medicine physician, it's hard to sort of provide nuance to this because I think the risk for most of us of meningitis is a pretty serious infection. And so what we recommend is strongly considering a lumbar puncture in that sort of age with abnormal inflammatory markers, especially an abnormal procalcitonin level that's high. And then based on the results of that a lumbar puncture, you have options. If you do the lumbar puncture and you're not able to uh, obtain it, we would recommend to strongly consider admission with ceftriaxone at, at a minimum for sort of empiric coverage of bacteremia at least. The CSF is normal. So you do lumbar puncture, it's normal. Then what the guideline recommends is you do share decision-making with a parent around potentially going home, getting a little ceftriaxone and going home. Even though you have a slight increased risk of bacteremia, you don't think the child has meningitis. And so you could really make a shared decision on discharge of ceftriaxone or admission on ceftriaxone. As long as the CSF is abnormal and it looks like the child has bacterial meningitis, you would then admit that child on broad-spectrum antibiotics, ceftriaxone or ceftazidine plus vancomycin for empiric treatment of meningitis. Now, if the urinalysis is not normal, so you presume that they have a UTI, even in the setting of, and this is in the 29 to 60 day age group, even in the setting of having elevated inflammatory markers, that child's risk of meningitis is still low. And so there, it's a consideration of whether to do a lumbar puncture, probably engaging the family around some of the risks and benefits of it um, and then either way, you're going to be admitting that child on IV septraxone uh, for treatment of presumed UTI and bacteremia. And you should consider lumbar puncture, even though the risk of meningitis is still pretty low in the setting of a UTI in this age group. So still consider it if the urinalysis is negative, still consider it if the urinalysis is positive, not mandatory. Yeah. And the risk is higher if the procalcitonin is elevated. Yes. So I think that this is where if you have procalcitonin available, it's really important that the test characteristics are just better than other tests. So the procalcitonin is elevated. That to me, I think I would strongly consider a lumbar puncture, especially in the setting of a urinalysis being normal in that age. Gotcha. Now, we also have the capability of testing for viruses. Does that change the algorithm if we do viral testing and it comes back positive, say for enterovirus? Yes. So for enterovirus, you would traditionally, we send it from the CSF. And so potentially you would have, say, 
it would have been a trial with abnormal inflammatory markers. We haven't talked about the normal inflammatory markers yet. It's a whole different algorithm. But if you said enterovirus PCR, that could actually come back positive before you know the definitive results of culture. In that setting, with enterovirus being positive, those infants are not zero risk, but pretty low risk for having simultaneous bacterial infection, meaning bacterial meningitis. So you could conceivably discharge that infant earlier from the hospital. Or if you got it back in the emergency department, you could discharge them potentially with close follow-up. Usually that result comes back later. I think respiratory viral testing is a little bit more tricky. And the guideline is a little bit more vague about respiratory viral testing because it hasn't been comprehensively studied, for example, with procalcitonin. I believe that will be done in the future with PCARN. So respiratory viral testing, for example, if you have a positive test for RSV, a positive test for influenza, or a positive test for SARS-CoV-2, I think most of our hospitals now have a rapid sort of fourplex that we often get back within two hours. Those infants, the studies show, are definitely, they still have a slightly increased risk of having a UTI, but it's definitely lower than infants who are viral negative. And the risk of invasive bacterial infection is definitely lower. I think at that point, you have a choice. And going back to the positive inflammatory markers, to me, if I have a positive inflammatory marker, especially the urinalysis, well, I guess urinalysis would probably be negative in that case or normal. That infant has a positive respiratory viral test. I may be less inclined to do a lumbar puncture. I was still discussing with the family, but now I have another source. It's well-documented. We did a retrospective study that showed that infants who are SARS-CoV-2 positive, especially in that 29 to 60-day age group, have a lower risk of a bacterial infection. And so I think that you could potentially hold that lumbar puncture, assuming you've engaged a family around this decision in the setting of a positive respiratory viral test in that second month of life. I think in the younger infants, the data is a little bit more mixed because there is a question of whether the risk of invasive bacterial infection is actually lower. But it's only the second month of life. I think you could potentially hold out a lot more puncture in the setting of a positive respiratory viral. Okay. So there is a chance then that someone in this age group with a fever, with some abnormal inflammatory markers in a negative urinalysis, but a positive test for COVID might not need a lumbar puncture. Yeah. And I think that the sort of summary on this is that we need better prospective data, which may take time to do. I think what the guideline really highlights, and the guideline does not address SARS-CoV-2 because there wasn't really enough evidence at the time, but they basically say is you should really balance physician risk tolerance with caregiver's risk tolerance because it's a little bit unclear. Like the risk, for example, with COVID of having bacterial meningitis is definitely low. I can't say it's zero. And so I think it's just acknowledging what your own risk tolerance is, including things like does the infant have good follow-up from the emergency department, does the infant feeding well, all these factors are factored. I think just erring on the side of caution is a good thing, but I think we can apply this to safely do less, assuming that we've arranged good follow-up, we've engaged the family so that they understand the risks of meningitis and understand what the sort of different options are. And that's what the guideline really recommends in some of these decisions is to incorporate that testing into your own risk tolerance equation, balancing that with the families. And then for the infants that have an abnormal urinalysis, does that change anything in any of these three age groups as far as how invasive we get with our testing? Are we still getting inflammatory markers and blood cultures and still having that discussion about lumbar puncture? Yeah, so in the 21 days or younger age group, regardless of your analysis results, you would still admit them on antibiotics, do a lumbar puncture as you would. With other two age groups, you would definitely still do a blood culture. And I think that in this 22 to 28 age group, and with an abnormal inflammatory marker, so the PCT is elevated, for example, you would still do a lumbar puncture regardless of your analysis results, you would admit them. I think it's a little more nuanced if the inflammatory markers are normal. Because then what the guideline really highlights, and we saw this in the algorithm in the article, 
is that in the setting of a positive urinalysis, analysis, but normal inflammatory markers, you may not have to do CSF tests. And that infant's risk of meningitis is low. And so what it recommends is that 22 to 28 age group is to engage the family and share decision-making around lumbar function, meaning weighing the risks and benefits of what's a low-frequency diagnosis of meningitis, but a high stakes in that it's serious diagnosis. In a 22 to 28 age group, they still recommend in the setting of a positive urinalysis to admit that infant to the hospital to get IV ceftriaxone empirically, just because the risk of bacteremia is a little bit higher than the younger, but the lumbar puncture is shared decision. In the older age group, the 29 to 60 day age group, in the setting of a positive urinalysis with positive inflammatory markers, again, I think a lumbar puncture is a consideration. I think the risk of meningitis is low. PCARN has shown that in their data, that the risk in that second month of life is low with a positive urinalysis, regardless of inflammatory markers. And so a lumbar puncture is an option, but you would admit that infant on antibiotics to the hospital. The inflammatory markers are normal, and the infant has a positive urinalysis. What the guideline recommends, this has been shown now in several studies, that infant's risk of factoring and meningitis are, are, are very low. And so the guideline says that the infant can, is feeding fine, can have good 24-hour follow-up. You can discharge that infant with a positive urinalysis on oral antibiotics. For example, a cephalexin or a cefixin, which is not bearable as much, but a ceftonir might be as a third-generation cephalosporin. Discharge them on oral antibiotics for presumptive treatment of UTI, just because the, the risk of bacteremia and meningitis is low. And again, that's for normal inflammatory markers in the 29 to 60. So interesting. It is definitely a nuanced approach. I'm looking at the three pathways yeah. that are in the article, which are fantastic, by the way. Thank you so much, you and all the authors, for going through the efforts of building these. And we'll convert them to interactive versions for the app. But the nuances of do they have a UTI? Do they have inflammatory markers? Are they ill or not ill appearing? Really make a big difference in disposition. The young ones, the less than 21 days are not going home under any circumstance with a fever. The 22 to 28 day, there is actually a chance that they could go home after you've sent blood cultures if their inflammatory markers are normal and their CSF is normal. That's one possibility where they might mm -hmm. go home. Uh, and I say might because it's not a mandatory thing. It's easy to put them in an observation anyway. And then the 29 to 60 day category really have some good possibility of going home depending on what their testing shows for inflammatory markers and your analysis. There's a good chance that they may not be hospitalized. Yeah, and I think the big caveat from the guideline that's in there is the ideal that the child has 24-hour follow-up which I recognize, depending on your practice setting, may be easy or difficult to guarantee. So I think that's where some of this risk tolerance comes in. But it is very important that if you are discharging a child home in those latter two age groups, it's really important that the best of your ability, communicate with a primary care physician, give very detailed, not just follow-up instructions, but also discharge instructions for if the infant gets worse. Because the infant's risk of infection is low, but you know having an invasive bacterial infection is not zero. And so making sure they have very detailed, clear instructions to come back. Uh, and then that's really important in discharging any of these infants from the emergency department. And is the idea there that they will see a provider in 24 hours and then get a second dose of ceftriaxone with that reassessment? Or is that just depending on what they look like and what's happened in the gap of 24 hours? the latter, that they're really looking at that gap of 24 hours while cultures are in the lab being looked at or being looked at every 24 hours depending on the lab. It's really just for a second pair of eyes. Look at the infant, how are they feeding, any signs of 
do they look ill appearing now? And I think the good news is our protocols, these inflammatory market protocols, especially with PCT, work well, but they're not perfect. So I'll use the PCON rule, which is highly sensitive, so it doesn't miss many invasive bacterial infections, but also is more specific, so it has two or false positives. So that infant is negative by that rule. So PCT, ANC are negative, and they go home, their risk is very, very low, but it's not zero. And so I think it's just really having a second pair of eyes to make sure the infant's doing well and doesn't need a return visit or now to go back to then get a lumbar puncture and have one because their clinical status has changed. And if you're in the low-resourced area where you can't get a 24-hour follow-up for somebody, these people are all staying in the hospital and getting continued observation there. Yeah, so I think admission may be more likely. There are, there's other possibility too with a family and, and chilling it out with a family is returning to the emergency department for 24 hours, which recognizing there are downsides to that as well, from infection risk to costs, as well as just emergency department busyness. But that's another option. I think you have to weigh that family's admission versus a return visit to the emergency department. For example, on the weekend, it might be a time where you might do that as well. Okay. One more question then about herpes simplex virus infection in the neonate. So in this population, are we waiting for confirmatory testing if there's no obvious rash to go along with this before we start something like acyclovir, or are we just initiating it from the beginning? Yeah, so I think what the guideline and what we put in the article is we use this guideline that was developed out of Cincinnati and as part of a QI project. And essentially, if the infant has any high-risk feature, so somebody has a rash, is ill-appearing, has a seizure, there's a high risk of the mom having a primary HSV infection, for example, while the time of delivery, is to not just do comprehensive HSV testing, skin, mucous membrane, blood, CSF, but also to start acyclovir, just empirically, recognizing that there's some data that for infants who have HSV in this neonatal period, every day you delay acyclovir could have a higher risk of mortality. For infants who are 21 days and below without risk factors, you're going to be doing a CSF anyway. The recommendation is to do a CSF HSV PCR. And then if the infant does not have any of those risk factors and the CSF is clean and does not look like meningitis, then you could hold on acyclovir in that age group, for example. So essentially, it's really based on risk factors. So if you think the infant is higher risk based on these combination of risk factors, then you would start acyclovir. Otherwise, you could hold on it, recognize that infant 21 days or below, just with a fever, no CSF, clear cytosis, does not look like meningitis. Without risk factors, it's probably pretty low risk for HSV, and so you could spare them an additional uh, unnecessary antiviral. Perfect. All right, we've gone through the bulk of this so far. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you want to be sure to mention? So the, the one thing I will just mention, we include this in the article just because it was a little more recent, is the idea of health equity and disparities in thinking about febrile infants. I mentioned that because it's only an area of more research in a lot of areas. I think there's, a, you know, hopefully so, a more recent sort of equity lens applied to it. The main study that we showed here was done in this multi-tenor network by Colleen Gutman that looked at low-risk febrile infants, that 29 and 68 group. And essentially what she found retrospective studies, so it has limitations for sure, but is that by race and ethnicity, the thought being that a low risk infant should not have a lumbar puncture, should not get antibiotics and should not be hospitalized because they're low risk. That's per that guideline and post guideline. What she found is that based on race and ethnicity, there was no difference in that. So that's good. So based on race and ethnicity, there was not that one race uh, or one ethnicity was getting uh, a higher uh, proportion of those infants were getting unnecessary lumbar punctures hospitalizations. But there was a difference for infants of parents whose language for care was other than English, that those infants, a higher portion of them had a lumbar puncture, a hospitalization, or antibiotics. That just shows that perhaps that's probably, could be a communication gap, or supplies. There's lots of reasons. We don't know those reasons. I think it's just when we apply these guidelines, we should apply the evidence to all infants, regardless of race or ethnicity, regardless of language for care, 
we should apply the guideline as written. I think the guidelines are important for reducing disparities when applied appropriately. So that's just something just to keep in mind. But I mentioned that just as an area of further research that's needed and for us to be mindful in our practice of whether we have our own biases or just to make sure we're providing equitable care to this population. Yeah. And in your own personal practice, have you noticed that this tends to be now a rather complicated discussion to have with a parent regarding their chances of invasive bacterial infection and then their chance of meningitis and do I do this test, do I do that test? Or have you found that parents are pretty responsive and able to engage in that kind of shared decision-making quite a bit? Yeah, it's a great question. And so another area, active area of research and shared decision-making is throughout the guideline. And we've done some work trying to develop shared decision-making scripts or tools that should need to be validated. And I think it does add time to us as a busy emergency medicine provider. You're certainly time limited, right? In a high acute environment. These conversations do take a little bit of time. I think the key point is I think you can do it in a way that is efficient, reasonably efficient. And I think the most important thing is this, when shared decision making is recommended is to approach all the families the same way and meet them where they are. I approach it the same way with my same script. And a family may say, you know what, doc, you make the choice. You decide lumbar puncture. Or they may say, you know what, here's where I want to be involved. I want to, I think lumbar puncture is, I'm really worried about meningitis, I want to do it. Or I hear you, the risk is low, I'm not worried about it, don't, don't have to do it. I think it's just the key is to engage all families the same, but it is a little bit of a complicated discussion around some of these risks. There are health literacy friendly ways to do it in how we present numbers and engage families. So the interpreter service is very important when we have families whose language for care is other than English. But I think it does add a little more nuance. And I think it's important. And I think what we need to do going forward is continue to develop tools to help the emergency medicine provider do it in a more efficient, systematic way would be the sort of next evolution of that type of work. Great. Yeah, that's a great answer. I do think that the, the nuances are wonderful in preventing unnecessary testing like lumbar punctures, but certainly complicate the discussion where it used to be, oh, you're 60 days with a fever. We're doing everything. We're putting you in the hospital. I'm very sorry. I have to do the lumbar puncture now. Let's get to it. And now it's a nuanced conversation of the risk, the percentage. Let's check the your analysis first. And then there are some preliminary things we do first and then come back to the conversation again. So it isn't just a one-stop shop, get every bodily fluid you can yeah. and then ship them off to get admitted. It is a get some tests, wait for the results, get some more tests, wait for the results, and then maybe do a lumbar puncture. That definitely adds complexity. Yep. And my advice in that, I know the TV is a little bit from this sort of exact content of the article, but I think my advice is I try to, my best to prep families up front. They're often understandably families who have maybe been home for a couple of weeks or, or less with their child. They're tired, they're stressed, as any of us would be in that situation. And just, I think to me, what we found in from a qualitative work is just giving them information over time, just to prep them for the next phase. Here's what could happen, coming back, revisiting it, just because often parents just need repeat information. There's a lot going on, it's their baby. Any of us would be stressed if it was our child. So I think it's just making sure you set the stage and then come back to it at a different point, I think is the best sort of way to do it, just to have them be along with the journey and not overwhelm them with too much information at each point, but just have them follow along with you as best you can. Yeah, I like that. I like that very much. Thank you for being on the podcast. If you're listening and you have access to the article, I highly suggest you look at the algorithms and you follow them. They're excellent, very well designed, and they will be in the interactive version in the mobile app. 
And uh, thanks again to you and the other two authors for taking the time to write this and, and educate us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I do want to make a, a sincere acknowledgement to Lauren Palladino and Christopher Wall, who are the co-authors on this, who put a lot of work. They're also experts in, in thinking about and, and doing this work. And I'm very fortunate to have worked with them on this article. Again, thank you so much again for publishing the article and for having me on this podcast. And that's a wrap. Thanks, Dr. Paul Aronson, for being on the show. Don't forget to check out the February 2024 article in Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice on Pediatric Fever, and of course, all the other resources available to you at ebmedicine.net. Until next time, be safe, everyone.